Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Guy C. Adami, and of course, EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She is the chief market strategist at SoFi, where you can get your money right all in one app. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can, Liz, <laughs> in in the house uh, on a Monday Hey-o. morning here in NYC. I'm back, and I really thought, Guy, after, let's say, nine days not potting, that my voice would, would have gotten a little reprieve, reprieve. What would you say? Reprieve, reprieve? I don't know. Re, um, a, a, a rejuvenation, rejuvena- a respite, any of those words. Not happening. Restoration. But, but here we are. Restoration. And, and, and I missed a, a kind of, I, I think, a really important week in the markets last week. When I left, it was that holiday shortened week. It was that July fourth week, and there were some weird things going on within, in the bond market, right? There was um, a lot of data that we were focused on, this jobs data. Some people, not you, Guy, were calling it Goldie Loxie. It seems like lots of folks have acquiesced around the, fa- the fact that we are just having a soft landing here. That is in the cards. That's what the markets are saying here. Every market, right? Are there any markets, Liz, to you that are flashing anything other than a soft landing right now? Are there warning bells screaming in silence in any market? I still think yield curve inversions are screaming in silence or maybe not even in silence. Are there markets though, as in stock markets telling us that something bad is coming? Sectors. Not really. I mean, if you really want to dig for it on a sector level, when you have up days, and utilities are outperforming. You've got a defensive sector that does really well on an update. There's obviously still some appetite out there for defense and people who are looking for that, but that hasn't really caused anything that has come to fruition across the rest of the market. So is there a market that's screaming something other than a soft landing? Other than the yield curves, probably not. Is there economic data, the concurrent economic data? No. The lagging economic data, not really. 
the leading economic data still is screaming something's wrong, right? You look at the leading economic indicators, it's been in contraction for a long time and is now pretty deeply in contraction. PMIs still saying something's wrong. It seems like they all get explained away. And guy, when, when do. we use that term screaming, we've been talking about you in particular, the, the duration in which the yield curve 210 has been inverted, right? The, the magnitude of that inversion. And it's really hard to look back at history and say that will not have some sort of difficult economic consequence, right? You know what I mean? And usually if the stock market is a discounting mechanism, like that's where I'm getting hung up here. And so I'm, I'm posing this is somebody who really did take a very solid week off from the markets and the diet that we feed on most every day that the markets are open and the stuff that we're reading all evening and early in the morning on our iPhones. And, and, and I'm looking at my fact set screen here, guy, and I see some like weird shit happen last week, like the way we saw just home builders blow out and then the way that some of the banks performed. The disconnect between crude oil getting to the mid-70s and yet Exxon closed last week week on a three-month low. There's lots of things going on here that even make, to me, that much more confused, like having not read a single thing for a week. Isn't that screaming in silence like one of your bands that you like? Yeah, that, no, no, you know what? That quote, it, it is, it's from a Green Day song, she Screams in Silence. Green That's Day. the quote. It's a great yeah, band, Green Day. It is a great band, but give it to me, guy. Me looking at my fact set screen this morning and I see a lot of weird stuff, or is it just what it was happening every day last no, week? No, I think you're right. It was a strange week for sure. There were a lot of reversals last week. I think Liz is spot on in terms of the leading economic indicators are suggesting something far more nefarious is going on. But people look at it through the lens of an S&P 500, which is 4,500-ish, and it's effectively less than 10% away now from its prior all-time high, which is pretty remarkable when you think about that. But in terms of the warning signs, they're absolutely there. And, and the first thing Liz said was the yield curve in the bond market. She's right. You had volatility back in the bond market last week. You had some absurd moves. Two tens went down to about 84 basis points, back up to 98 or so basis points. As we sit here today, it's probably either side of 90. Can't really figure out where it needs to go or where it should be. A lot of people now are talking about a potential Fed rate cut early next year. I don't really know what that augurs without be on the back of, you know, if them taking the mission accomplished type of thing. I don't think the mission is accomplished by any stretch. And we had Dennis DeBusher on the On The Tape podcast, which dropped on Friday. And he said something that I intuitively knew, and I think EY would agree with, the comps for inflation data are going to get much more difficult in September, October, and November. So to the extent that there's been easy work the easy work has been done, and now these things are going to start to trend higher, which is probably why the Fed has been as hawkish as they've been, which sort of belies what's been going on in the broader market. So I still think the market's in for a rude awakening. I will tell you there were some individual reversals last week, which were fascinating, not least of which NVIDIA on Friday. I don't want to make a huge deal about it, but it made, I think, an all-time high only to reverse lower on the day. So a lot of those moves, and you mentioned Exxon, but for every Exxon, there's something in the OIH. The OIH very quietly has gone from about 245, I think it got up to 328 or so last week. You're right to suggest they're cross currents. They still exist. But again, the way I look at the world, the market, the S&P 500 to 4,500 should not be here. 
So one of the things last week that happened, I was on Halftime Report, I don't remember exactly which day, but Ed Yardeni was on with us, and I asked him a question. Ed usually skews bullish. Mm -hmm. I asked him a question about the bullish narrative and how would we expect yield curve inversions to right themselves without inflicting pain on the rest of the market. And his answer, I thought, was actually pretty interesting. It wasn't necessarily how yield curve inversions are going to inflict pain, but just generally what yield curve inversions signal. So they signal that there's probably some kind of financial crisis that's going to occur. We've already had that in the regional banks. They also then signal, usually after said financial crisis, that there's going to be some kind of credit crunch, which has not occurred. So now the question is, are the yield curve inversions just wrong? Is it sending the wrong signal if that credit crunch never happens? Or is that the next thing, that's the next shoe to drop that we're going to see come to fruition. I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I thought it was an interesting response. And last week we talked about previewing bank earnings that really got kicked off on Friday and we're going to get plenty more this week. And we talked a little bit about some of the reserves that these banks are taking just both. And, and again, the consumer seems to be in such a weird spot. And to your point, Guy, about some of the headline numbers as it relates to inflation, the way that they've come down, but you saw that University of Michigan print right on Friday here. And so you don't get a sense that many of the large money center banks are particularly particularly worried right now about defaults, right? And again, why you wouldn't expect them to be sounding off on them right now, but all that said, Jamie Dimon, on a few occasions over the last, call it 12 to, to 16 months, has actually, remember the economic storm is coming and all those sorts of things, and we get called out all the time. Maybe that's we're always talking about <laughs> markets and always have takes, but like some of these bank CEOs have had some of the worst takes in the last year and a half or something like that. Or at least like change that. their minds. Well, they They've changed, changed their, their minds. Mind. I mean, yeah. It's just funny to me. But here's one, and this is going back to Yardeni, and I think Guy and I both really think very highly of Ed also. And I think you're right to say that he skews this way. He's not a perma anything, you know what I mean? And a lot of these strategists, as without naming names, are really good at talking uh, out of both sides of their mouth. David Rosenberg is not one of them. Rosenberg Research, Rosie's been on the pod. It will be back on the pod hopefully very soon. He had a comment in his Mornings with Dave piece this morning, the fact that the Fed-induced curve inversions have presaged recessions 100% of the time in the past is never respected. Always, Guy, a case of hope triumphing over experience. So again, if you're just drilling down and trying to say this 100% of the time has preceded an economic recession, and clearly there are no markets, that's what we've already established in our first 10 minutes of this pod, there's very few markets that are suggesting if they are going to predict this other than the yielding curve that we're actually in for something difficult. You mentioned the University of Michigan sentiment print that happened on Friday. It was very optimistic. I think that should be expected in a situation where we've got markets up, inflation down. Consumers, of course, are going to answer. I'm still employed. Inflation is down and the stock market is up. Of course, I feel better, right? So sentiment is going to stay elevated as long as that's the situation. This might be an obvious thing for everybody, but I just want to point it out. Inflation rates that we talk about are growth rates, right? These are year-over-year -year growth rates. So inflation has stopped growing as fast as it did, but it's still growing. And we just passed the peak, the year-over-year -year peak, 9.1% was last June. If it continues to grow and it never turns negative, all of those prices that were passed through, the costs that were passed through and the prices that rose are still there. That's still happening, right? That already took a bite out of everybody's paycheck for the last year. And unless we go into complete deflation, we are still dealing with elevated prices. So it's everything spiked up and now it just plateaued. And I think there's this big victory lap going on as if we've solved the problem, but we're, it's still too high. 
No doubt about it, EY. I mean, it's insidious. It is one of those hidden taxes that nobody seems to want to talk about, but it's there. And, you know, it's not just the Biden administration. Administrations through the course of history will take these victory laps when numbers start to go their way. And the people at home say, what are you looking at that I'm not seeing? And the spin on these things is remarkable. But then, you know, Dan, you mentioned the banks. Look at State Street, which is not a small bank, by the way, $23 billion market cap last I looked. Look at the move that stock had late last week, significant move to the downside. So when all these other banks seemingly are saying one thing, you listen to the commentary out of State Street, which, by the way, I'm not suggesting one is more meaningful than another, but it was pretty dire. And that stock traded in kind. For every bank CEO, the Brian Moynihan's that say everything's great, the consumer's in great shape, balance sheets are tough, all those things, which may be true through the lens that they look at, there's a State Street it's telling an entirely different story. So what's the end game here? People say it's different this time, and I would agree with them. And, and I can make an argument that it's different this time in so much that it's probably worse this time because the complacency around it all is is quite alarming, actually. Yeah, no, it is. And I guess if we're really trying to drill down and get to that one thing, I think that is screaming something out in the future six months. Forget the yield curve at this point. It really is the data out of China, okay? And this is something that we talked about a little bit over the last couple of weeks because, Liz, you just used the D word, deflation, right? We've been obsessed with inflation. It seems like we've been obsessed with inflation really since the warnings about QE in the wake of the financial crisis, right, back in 2009-10. And you could say the headline never really came, but it seeped into, and I made this point before because I think Guy had been saying this for a long time, just look at healthcare, look at education, look at like some of the biggest expenditures, the way that we've seen things in housing over that sort of time period. And it wasn't until we had this really weird situation, the pandemic and broken supply chains, where it became something of a very acute situation here. So I agree with you guys. Yeah, 4% inflation is still something pretty serious. If we do actually start going into recession and we do have unemployment get above 4%, that's when you have that flip-flop where you have basically inflationary readings that are higher than, like, than where we need to be in that regard as far as wage growth and the like here. So if wages don't keep up, and so that's the thing that's odd, but let's talk a little bit about China. There's no way you can look at their GDP and just place it in the hands of the domestic demand, right? Because if you think of what China is, and I get it, deglobalization and, and diversifying supply chains, but there's some things going on over there. We know that there's a debt bomb waiting to go off. We know that there's like huge commercial real estate issues over there. But they have a 21% youth unemployment rate. And when you think about what we just saw, and Guy, we talked about this a little bit. What did this, this like mini coup in Russia mean for China? And when you think about the ingredients of what it might take, and in our lifetime, Liz, you were probably still a cheerleader or something that, but back in, when Tiananmen Square, when that was popping off, Guy, that was a youth-led sort of thing. And when you have 21% youth unemployment and a totalitarian regime, and you starting to get information the way that these folks are. I don't know, man. It just feels like a deflationary spiral in China could be a really dangerous thing for the global economy. Without question, when you, you it's funny, for years on Fast Money and prior to us doing On the Tape or Market Call or any of these things, we would talk about China being the growth engine for not only some of the multinationals here, but basically the world. And that was true for a period of time. I think it's no longer true. That torch is probably being passed to the continent of Africa or maybe even India or other things. That's not here today, but it's coming to a theater near you. If you want to look at it through, the, again, the lens of the FXI, 
Think about the FXI real quick. This is an index that probably made its all-time high 16 or so years ago. I want to say in the fall of 07. Since then, it's been basically been trading sideways until recently when you had this pretty significant leg lower starting in late January of this year. And then you have a series of effectively lower highs. I don't know, Dan, necessarily if we're going to take a look at that sort of May low. I think we got down to about 25 or so. But the FXI does not trade particularly well. And that's got to be a concern, especially when you talk about how important China is to the global economy. So we've talked about this before on on this pod and on Market Call. One of the things that was supposed to lead us out of the recession was China reopening and all the demand that was going to occur. And then they took so long to reopen, we didn't have their demand to rely on. But it turned out that the economy was fine anyway, right? U.S. demand took over, the stock market still went up, and it looked like we didn't really need China for that anymore. In the immediate term, in the near term, I think that this China thing is is probably a headline and an interesting thing to talk about. I don't know that people, at least domestic U.S. investors, are going to consider it a real threat to our stock market today or our economy today. This may be something that's a slow-moving beast that as we see it over the next year or two, it'll be like, oh, yeah, we should have seen that coming. But this might be another one of those topics that the three of us will sit here and say, this is a really big risk and, and this is a problem. And and it'll be something that just doesn't happen for yeah, a while. Yeah, and we've spent a lot of time, and it's not, I don't think, any of our area of expertise, but with, with the Chinese defending their currency, I, I think one of the biggest things to me that happened last week while I was uh, away spending euros was was the move in the dollar. And when you see Guy the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, go from 103.5 to, to 99.5 or 100 or so, making a new 52-week low down from 115 in mid-2022, I, I think that's another one of these things. Things, that is screaming something. I don't know. And you could say in the near term, this is great for U.S. corporate earnings. For, this is great for large because it's driven by large U.S. multinationals and that sort of thing. And so if you're thinking of all these companies that have dealt with higher costs as it relates to dealing with supply chains and higher input costs or whatever, the dollar going down like this is pretty remarkable. And maybe we'll get some data from FactSet. I'm sure our main man Butters is tracking this throughout earnings season, the implication of uh, a much lower dollar year over year on S&P 500 earnings. What were the headlines there, Guy? Because it just fell out of bed in the last Yeah, well, there are a lot of people now talking about, if you read over the weekend, which you probably did, it's funny, all of a sudden, I've been reading more and more about the demise of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, that's rearing its ugly head again. Janet Yellen, I think, to a certain extent, has been trying to address that. But Tim Seymour talks about this all the time. It's about central bank differentials. So what I think the dollar is telling you, and maybe correctly, I have no idea, One more hike for the Fed, maybe two. But again, we sort of alluded to it earlier in this show that maybe we're going to see cuts in the beginning of next year, whereas you have other central banks continuing to raise rates. So when you have an ECB, when you have that eurozone, which is clearly in decline, but yet their inflation problem trumps their decline and they continue to raise rates, you can understand why the dollar would weaken against the pound or the sterling or the euro, whatever you want to look at. And that's what's been happening. The move in dollar yen, for example, has been interesting. The Japanese are doing their best now. Yield curve control, something that Danny Moses talks about all the time. So you have all these central banks mucking up the waters. In the meantime, you've had this move lower in the dollar, which is one of the reasons why I think gold is holding in there as well as it has. It's off a little today as we're chatting. Again, commodities are going to get that tailwind on the back of a weaker dollar. And I think the gold move is coming again. I use that term to a theater near you. That's coming as well. 
Do you think cyclical commodities will get a tailwind as well? So things like copper, would that get a tailwind? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that I think the headwind has abated. They still have a headwind in terms of what Dan talked about earlier, the slowdown in China and this global slowdown. It, I don't want to get too granular, too wonky here. It, I, I use the term commodity. I shouldn't. I don't really think gold is a commodity. There's really no end use for gold as opposed to crude oil, gasoline, copper, aluminum, those types of things. Gold to me is just a central bank play. And Central banks have been buying gold. The dollar is weakening. And I think central banks have been basically hedging their own ineptitude. And I think gold hangs in there. You had a decent move last week, treading water a little bit today. To answer your question, I think some of the important commodities, the economically sensitive commodities, that headwind is abated, but by no stretches at a tailwind. But for something like gold, I think it's going to start to pick up a little steam on the back of this. And the reason I ask is because one of the things that you can watch for a, as a cyclical indicator is copper versus gold. You can also watch lumber as an indicator of cyclicality in the housing market. And I think the housing market has been something that continues to confound most of us. And just the strength and the fact that prices have not fallen yet. I got to tell you, I read a really scary article over the weekend, and I don't want to make it bigger than it is, but I was surprised to see the headline. It came across as an alert on my phone. Some of you may have seen it. Something along the lines of $9 trillion being tapped in HELOCs. For those of you who don't know what home HELOC equities, is, baby. Come on. home equity line of credit. Why are people doing that? Because they can't do the cash out refi or they don't want to do the cash out refi because they don't want to enter into a mortgage at six or 7%. So they do a HELOC. And the things that people are using this money for, the article begins, a couple in Austin using money to fix up a rental house and pay for their three young kids to ascend, attend Montessori school, a cop in Florida playing the stock market with HELOC funds. This is stuff that you don't want people to be using leveraged money for. And the reason that they can take out a good HELOC right now is because prices are high. You could argue prices are inflated. So you've got an inflated value of a house. It looks like you have more equity in it than you may if prices come down, right? And now if they come down, you're underwater real quick. Listeners, Guy and Adami and I are just shaking our heads here. You hear that expression all the time. History rhymes. It doesn't repeat. Like literally, we could have been reading these stories in 06, early 07. It's the same shit, man. And it really is scary. And I guess the thing that I just say right now is, Guy, what do you say about the consumer? Never. No, I say never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend. They will always, regardless as to whether or not they should be spending. And you should read an article. Maybe we can put it in the show notes, Dan. Peter Bookfor had a great piece this morning talking about a lot of the things we're talking about now, how you know, if you look at the global debt, and it is a crisis that's out there that's not being, it's not manifested in equity markets. Clearly, I think to a certain extent, some of these bond markets are, are taking hold and taking catching wind of this. But these things have not... They, they have not factored their way into either the economy yet or the stock market. But to think it's not going to happen, again, that it's different this time, okay, it's different this time. It might be worse this time, just given the magnitude of the numbers and the speed and the size of which the Fed has raised rates over this period of time. We've never seen anything like it. Elizabeth was talking about this in the spring, to think that we're going to wake up in December and say, oh, wow, look, we got through this unscathed. It's absolute folly. Yeah. And we probably at this point should not use wake me up when September ends. That would be one too many, <laughs> one too many green days. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Let's talk about some single stock names because we're going to have a lot of earnings this week. We had some of those home builders reporting right in, in June, and we talked about the moves that they were making. Fifty-two week highs, like a Lennar, rallied from early June, okay, to the end of June, it rallied twenty percent, and then it sold off a little bit. And any of you guys just pull up your little screens here and look what this thing did over the last six trading days. It went from one twenty to one thirty-three, okay. And I can do that math, guy. That's ten percent, basically in a straight line to a fifty-two week high, okay, not just a 52-week high, an all-time high, essentially, or, or going back to the pre-crisis things. So people are literally tripping over each other, and people don't short the home builders in any meaningful way. You're not shorting a, a mid to high single-digit PE sort of name or this and that, whatever, okay? So they're tripping over each other to buy some of this stuff. We've seen this sort of behavior in other names this year. A lot of them have been related to this AI thing. I would also mention that there was an article in Barron's over the weekend just how there's a lot more of this to run in AI and everything like that. But we're going to get some data on some of these really loved names this week. And and one of them is obviously going to be Tesla. Okay. So that's a name. Netflix has had this amazing run. They both report Wednesday after the close. And again, I don't expect any real disasters in any of these names. It'll just be interesting to see how investors are set up into these, what the sentiment is. We know what the sentiment is, but what does it take if you see like a cooling? I saw some data guy on Tesla, a guy that I follow, I've quoted here, I pay for his Patreon, is Troy Tesla. He is agnostic to Tesla, but he tracks a lot of data and he gives what I think are really good estimates. He was really close on the delivery estimates that sparked this latest leg of the rally over the last couple of weeks. He's got gross automotive margins, okay, like at 17% 
for this thing, guy. And, and we're talking numbers that were in the mid-20s last year, You're talking about losing market share. How will investors react to that? Because the last time they disappointed on margins was the end of April, and that stock went to $150. And here we are at 285 as we're recording this right now. Think about that. Think about that in market cap terms. So investors have lost their freaking minds, not just about home builders, but a lot of stuff, not just about NVIDIA. So to me, that's the thing that at some point Point, that it gone unchecked, okay? If we do have a situation where China's weak, some of that data that you're talking about, the leading stuff, Liz, works its way into the markets, we could be down really significant. Th think about this. The S&P at its lows last year in October was down 30 plus percent and, and things were orderly last year. And interest rates were still zero in March. You know what I mean? The Fed funds rate. So think about where we are right now. So I don't know, Liz, give it to me. I mean, Well, like, that's the, the maybe... Maybe the worst case scenario, that's a situation where the capital markets stop functioning as they should, and then you see a Fed cut that's an emergency cut as a reaction, right? I think we're all hoping that doesn't actually happen. I got to bring this Green Day thing full circle, though. Oh, yeah. If that occurs, yeah. the song that we will play on this podcast is one called Good Riddance. Yeah. And if you remember the chorus, it goes, I hope you had the time of your life. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as being the rally. Often, I hope you had the time of your life. That's a closer for a lot of their There's, sets here. Oh, okay, great. I've never been to a Green Day concert, I don't think. But there's a line in it that says, time takes you by the wrist and directs you where to go. I think that will be the lesson if this actually occurs. And we'll look back on it and say, oh, look at that. Yield curve inversions do matter. Hikes do matter. The lag effect is actually 12 to 18 months long. And it all happened exactly when it probably should have in that window. We're still in that window. It's not over yet. It doesn't mean that it's not going to take a little bit longer this time. I think the longest that it's ever been since an inversion before recession is something like 20 or 21 months. So it can be longer. But I still just have such a hard time believing that, number one, the economic cycle is going to skip a phase. I don't think that's going to happen. And number two, as Guy alluded to, what I have been saying since spring is that we're going to have 525 basis points of Fed hikes and a, a mini financial crisis that happened in regional banks and then just float off merrily into the sunset and say, new bull market, expansion, everything's fine, everybody wins. You mentioned Tesla because it was the fall of last year. I think their margins were at 22 and at 20, let's call it 23% or so. And they said, because I remember talking about it on Fast Money, that margins will start to contract. However, they're not going to get down to legacy automaker levels. Legacy automaker levels are about 16%. So if that 17 number that you quoted is correct, that's not particularly good if, in fact, so much of this valuation is predicated on basically on margins. Their margins are decreasing. In terms of home builders, I'm not saying it's complicated because then I, you know, I'm, not do I'm trying to be somewhat patting myself on the back. But what we've talked about for a while, the supply-demand imbalances around home builders have been staggering. And if you think about people that own homes with 30-year mortgage rates anywhere from 2.85 to 3 and a quarter percent that's an asset. So unless they're selling their home for some ridiculous amount of money or have a place to go, they're not going anywhere. So the supply is not there. And if supply is not there, it's going to really, obviously, demand's been there all along and it's just going to drive up prices, which is one of the reasons the home builders have traded so well. And we've been talking about home builder stocks for the better part of 18 months. And all the names you mentioned, Pulte, Toll Brothers, DHI, all making new all-time highs, which is remarkable. Now, I will tell you this as well. That story will end. I am not smart enough to tell you you know, what's going to be the catalyst or when it's going to happen, but 
when that ends, it's going to be abrupt. So get ready for that. But we're not there yet, Dan. Yeah. And, and I guess, listen, if we're just thinking about, and maybe this is more of a conversation for Market Call, and we'll do that again with Liz on Thursday when she rejoins us here, is the S&P at 4,200 when it broke out, we were talking, we spent a lot of time in April and May and talking about that sort of tight consolidation. And especially after that period that we had in, in March, where it really did feel like we were in the middle of, of a little crisis here. And the breakout there, it's really been unabated from 4,200 to 4, 4,500 in the S&P 500. What would be really healthy? A check back to 4,200. If you're bullish, right? And if you run into this earnings season and even it would be good, even if it's like there were no disasters because expectations have just gotten too high. So Liz, talk to us about buy points here and let's finish it out here a little bit because we're going to get to the meat of earnings. We're going to hear from industrials. We're going to hear from some consumer led names. We're going to hear from some more financials. We're going to hear from tech companies that valuations have gone through the roof and really where they've gone just from a price standpoint is something that none of us could have foreseen six months ago. So expectations are running really hot into something where we know that some of the economic headwinds, that's what we started this podcast, they're starting to sink in a little more. This is on investors to me because nothing that I've heard from a lot of companies over the last three to six months or so is telling me that the C-level suite is getting over their skis. And I mean that. And strategists have been chasing all the way up because I think they were Position fairly bearish coming into this year. This is really on investors and animal spirits and what they are willing, how they're willing to participate in markets. So to me, if we have a really quick 10% move back to let's call it 4,100 or 4,000 or whatever, that's because investors screwed the pooch here. Yeah. And I would imagine if that happened, it's probably the stuff that's most inflated or the stuff that's run the most that would take us back down that 10%, which would most people expect to be the AI stocks, the tech stuff. Um, so you let some kind of air out of the balloon in those. And if you were looking for an entry point as a long-term investor, maybe that's an okay time. I think it's possible, and I have said this before, I think it's possible the NASDAQ bottom is behind us. The NASDAQ got hit really hard in 2022, rightfully so, because of rising rates. I'm not convinced that the S&P or Dow bottom is necessarily behind us. If in a pullback, cyclicals get hit, that's, I think, an entry point because cyclicals have not really come back and participated in this rally. Now, look, if we go through a recession and if the thing that the three of us are expecting to happen happens, then yes, cyclicals will get hit more. So you would buy them at this point. And I'm thinking of things like energy and financials, frankly. And you would buy them at this point with the expectation that you're going to sit through probably some pain in the next 12 months or so, but hold them through that next move upward if a recession occurs and we come out of it. So there's some buy points there. The other thing that I would say, although most of the defensive sectors like utilities and staples are pretty lofty in price right now, when the VIX is this low, you do want some defensives in the portfolio. Maybe that's gold for you. Maybe that's staples. Maybe that's utilities. But when the VIX is this subdued for this long and it doesn't really feel right like it should be, where you've got bond volatility up and stock volatility just sitting around, you want some defensive exposure. Before we get out of here, you were gone. I think you were in London or Paris or both. I'm not sure. But you sent a picture to me that I asked you if you were at like a costume party for Beauty and the Beast. You were like in full whatever that cat's name, Regalia. What was the guy in Beauty and the Beast? I don't know. I don't, I don't. Gaston. Yeah, what, yeah. Can you fill us in? Maybe we could put that in the show notes. No, well, no, we will not put that in the show notes. It's really <laughs> interesting. I, I um, have not been on Twitter 
in months. And I opened up an Instagram a few months ago and we're doing more on Instagram for social media. And it's really funny. I just, you know, guy, you're not one, you're not a big poster. Liz Young, you're not a huge poster. It's just so interesting. All the things that people are posting about their fabulous lives on the Instagram and everything like that. I'm just amazed. And it's this summer just brings it all out. That was in our private chat. It's going to stay private guy, um, <laughs> as, as you can imagine. And it's nice being off a uh, uh, Twitter and not feeling the need to do that. I do think it's interesting though, having Instagram attached to threads now and and threads really does feel like a very disorganized Twitter. And there's a lot of people on that. I see less of people posting. So one of the things I think is, and we'll talk more about threads versus Twitter and what this means for the social landscape on other pods. And we'll probably bring some smarter people on than us to talk about it. But it's interesting that Facebook might've finally figured out a mobile app where there is a vertical for one thing that's posting your boozy lunches and like your this, that, or whatever. And then the thoughts on the news of the day and this and that, whatever. So I don't know. That was my takeaway. I don't know how I got to my Paris regalia costume thing or whatever, but the people won't be seeing that picture anytime soon is what I would say. We're not going to see that on the gram? No, it won't be. No, not even. I'm not even there for that. Listen, I'm at a point in my life, guy, where at 50 years old, I probably want the the folks out there to know less about me than more. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense to me, but it's great to have you back. We had fun last week, but you were definitely missed. It's, It's good to clear your head sometime. And I will put this mark period really in the last six or seven months in in just a little bit of a bucket here. And again, I started in the markets in guy in 1997 and the inflation of that stock market bubble in the, the, the S&P rallied, I think on average 30% a year from 1995 to 1999. And to me, it was all new then, right? But I looked at some of the olden time, the olden people and they were looking around and they were saying, this is crazy. And they could have said it was crazy and been wrong for years and gotten taken out. And then what we saw with the NASDAQ, losing, you probably do too, a little PTSD from watching a major index that was in the middle of this bubble. It was the zeit of our nation. It really was. The way people talk about Tesla and NVIDIA and AI and chat, that's what was going on then. And then to see that index drop 80 some percent from its all-time highs and then take 15 years 15 years to get back to those highs. So to me, I still have a lot of stress about all that, but to be as wrong as I have in particular about some of this stuff, I know that ultimately we'll be right about a lot of this, but it's going to take a lot of time and and I'm not waiting around for it from a pundit standpoint or anything like that, but it just feels like we're in one of those moments, Guy. Do do you feel like we're we're getting close here, people? I do. I absolutely do. The difference now is I think when it does happen, things happen much quicker. Think about how fast it was then. I think it's going to be even faster now. So the recovery theoretically shouldn't take 15 years. But with that said, to think that we somehow have figured this out, that central bankers can somehow alchemy out all the ills that we've created over the last 25 or 30 years. Again, I used the word folly earlier. I'll use it again. So 4,500 S&P, let's have a conversation over the next few weeks We're into earnings season. You saw some of the reversals last week, I think are interesting, and we will continue to stay on top of this. All right, people, Liz, thanks for joining us on a Monday morning. Liz will be back with us on Market Call with Guy and myself Thursday, 1 o'clock. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Check out all of our content. We have a great episode of OK Computer dropping on Wednesday. Guy and I, if you're listening to this and we've already done it, but we do Market Call on Sirius XM Radio, 12 noon Eastern on Mondays, people. Go to our YouTube or go to our... Instead, you can find out the number there to call in there. So we got a lot of great stuff going on here. So we'll be back with you guys later on this week. Market call on the tape and OK Computer. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.